Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 301 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Chandler Klang Smith. She's a graduate of Bennington College and the Creative Writing MFA program at Columbia University, and she's worked in book publishing as a ghostwriter and for the KGB Bar Literary Venue. She served twice as a juror for the Shirley Jackson Awards, and she teaches and tutors in New York City. And we'll be speaking with her today about her new novel, The Sky is Yours, about a surreal science fiction city that for decades has been under attack by dragons. And now, here's our interview with Chandler Klang-Smith. All right, so we're here with Chandler Klang-Smith. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so it says in your bio that you went to Bennington College, and it seems like a lot of writers go there. So I was just curious what it was like going to Bennington as an aspiring writer. Um, yeah, I had a really great experience there. Um, you know, it is, as you know, like a small liberal arts college in Vermont. And um, one of the things that really appealed to me about it is that you get to design your own education. So I was really able to follow my own imagination and inspiration with the stuff I studied. I studied literature and philosophy. And um, yeah, and I got to work independently from pretty much the beginning on a lot of creative projects, which I think empowered me to feel like I could uh, go on and write books in the future. Hmm. Now, I mean, the two writers that I know who came out of Bennington just off the top of my head are Brett Easton Ellis and Jonathan Leatham. Were you sort of aware that they had gone there? Is that something people still talk about? Yeah, definitely. Um, Jonathan Leatham actually ended up being our commencement speaker when I graduated. So he was definitely someone that was really on my radar. And I really, really love his work. And um, Brett Easton Ellis was somebody that definitely had this reputation that preceded him. But I didn't really read a lot of his stuff uh, when I was an undergrad. I think I had read American Psycho when I was in college. And then I didn't really return to his work until later. But um, yeah, and uh, Donna Tartt also is obviously someone that's really associated with Bennington. And uh, her novel is Secret History. When I read it in my 20s, it really took me back to what it was like to be on that campus um, with more murder. Because <laughs> yeah. it's sort of a set, set out of Bennington type uh, college. Yeah, here. definitely. It's really closely based on Bennington. She even makes reference to campus landmarks like uh, the end of the world, for example, is this sort of like uh, looking off point at the end of one, you know, um, one end of the commons lawn. And so there's like, I think, an end of the world party in that novel. There are just a lot of things that definitely brought up specific memories from being on campus. Uh -huh. So Yeah. And so in the when you were taking creative writing there, were you writing fantasy and science fiction or more realistic fiction? Or what, what were you writing? Yeah, it was, I, I've definitely always been drawn to really surreal, over-the-top imagery. Like, uh, I was working for a long time on a, a novel called um, Cartoon Music that involved herds of feral cats. And um, there was a part where there was a disembodied hand, sort of like from the Addams Family, um, that kind of like worked out a philosophical thought experiment in, in prose. So I was definitely always drawn toward, toward writing stuff that was really weird. Um, Actually, Jonathan Lethem was somebody that was a big influence on, you know, getting me to think more consciously about genre and how I could use the tools of genre as sort of rocket fuel for my stories. So I definitely, you know, credit reading some of his books like, uh, yeah, like Girl and Landscape, Gun with Occasional Music, and especially Chronic City as, you know, being an influence on The Sky is Yours. Mm -hmm. And so then you get out of Bennington and kind of what happens after that with your writing? 
Um, I went to the MFA program at Columbia University. So I was there for two years immediately following um, undergrad. And um, yeah, I had a really good experience there. It was, it's a big program and there is a wide variety um, in terms of both what other students were doing and what the faculty were up to. So I think it exposed me to like sort of a wide swath of what was happening in contemporary publishing. And um, yeah, then I worked at literary agencies for a few years um, and, you know, continued with my writing. So, yeah. Now, so when I was looking at MFA programs about 10 years ago, I got the strong mm-hmm. impression Columbia was not um, sort of really friendly to fantasy and science fiction. Has that changed, do you think, um, in recent years? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if I would say that that's true. Um, I know that, like, Victor Laval is teaching there now, and oh, obviously cool. he's somebody who, you know, his work occupies that space that's in the intersection of literary and genre with definitely influences of, like, horror, science fiction, all of that stuff. Um, and I think that, like, Kelly Link actually briefly taught there after the time that I was uh, in the program. Um, so, you know, I think that they're open to having people come in who are coming from different genre backgrounds, but it, it probably just depends on, you know, like, you know, who who's uh, doing the hiring at the time and also what they see as the student interest. But also, like, um, Lincoln Michelle, who, whose work you might know, um, He's like, you know, he writes uh, short stories that are really at the intersection of literary and genre as well. And he was like a classmate of mine. So I feel like it's something that's there. It's just not like uh, I wouldn't say it's the dominant mode in the program. Did you study directly with Victor Laveau? No, no, no. I Like, yeah, he, he didn't start teaching there until after I was a student. Although I think he actually did come and give a reading and talk when I was there. Um, as part of the life after the MFA series, because I remember getting to see him and that was how I first, like, uh, first, first became familiar with his work. So, yeah. So I think that, like, Columbia definitely, I think that they champion people who are coming from all different directions as long as they end up doing something, you know, kind of making it their own in some way. Um, I wouldn't specifically go there thinking this is a genre program, but, like, I think that, that, you know, if you kind of make a case for what you're doing on the page, then people are usually sort of amenable to it. Mm-hmm. And so then how did you go about getting your work published? Well, um, I guess that like the first thing was, um, you know, I did have this earlier sh- uh, shorter novel published by Cheesing Publications back in 2013. And then um, that was like, you know, in some ways a good experience. But like, I think that like, um, I really wanted to go farther with this book. So, um, you know, it, the thing that was great about having the uh, the novel published by Cheesing was that it put me in contact with a lot of people in the speculative fiction community here in New York. Um, and I started doing, you know, I, I've read for things like the New York Review of Science Fiction series, and I've become friends with people like Karen Hewler and Nicholas Kaufman, who are, um, who are writers in New York. So that definitely gave me some encouragement that, like, if I continued in a speculative direction, I would have an audience. Um yeah. And then with this book, I worked on it, you know, independently for a long time. And then I ended up taking a writing workshop at the 92nd Street Y with Stephen Wright, who's an author I really admire. Um, and then, yeah, you know, um, I basically like drafted and redrafted it and then eventually sent it out to some agents. And when I connected with um, Bill Clegg, who became my agent, he was just incredibly insightful and helpful in the editorial process before we went out with it to editors. You started writing it in 2009? 
Yeah, thereabouts. Um, I, it was kind of very much in fits and starts because, like I said, I was uh, working at literary agencies. So I had a job that was, uh, yeah, that just took a lot of a, lo- a lot of the same energy from me, like, you know, in terms of reading manuscripts, writing editorial and pitch letters. So I was balancing that with like the early stages of this book. But um, but yeah, over time, the pages started to accumulate. And the more time I spent in the world, the more I felt like it was something that I was I was really invested in and that it seemed worth it to be ambitious about. So. I mean, do you remember at this point kind of what the initial spark of inspiration was or initial premise or anything like that? I guess that the, the first image that I had in my mind was of um, the character Abby, um, the girl who grows up on the, the landfill island in the book. I had this mental picture of this girl, um, you know, standing on this island of garbage and looking at these dragons in the sky over a city. And um, I sort of didn't know exactly what it meant or what the connection between the girl and the dragons was, but I knew that it was something that I wanted to further explore. Mm-hmm. Well, so tell us about the premise of the book. It's set in this place called Empire Island. Yeah. Yeah, so it's uh, it's set in a futuristic city called Empire Island, um, and I guess that I would say that the premise is it centers on three young people who are coming of age there. Um, these dragons have been attacking the city for the last 50 years, so sort of the the recent history and culture of the city have been entirely shaped by, you know, by these constant fires. And then, um, yeah, coming of age there, there's... Um, a young man, Duncan Ripple, who's kind of a toxic bro. He's the scion of the city's wealthiest family, this very Trump-like family called the Ripples. Um, then he's, because he's flunked out of school and, you know, isn't really mentally capable of managing the family's fortune, his father has arranged this marriage between him and um, Swan Lenore Dahlberg, this baroness who's very bookish, very tempestuous, and... Um, but right before that marriage is supposed to take place, he crashes his flying car on that landfill island and meets this girl who's been living there in isolation ever since she can remember, and they get romantically involved. So it sort of starts out as a love triangle, um, but then when those three characters end up getting kind of cast out into the larger city, they have to find their way um, in a world that is really pretty hostile to them and that they're not really prepared for because in a way each of them has been raised on an island of garbage. Like uh, hmm. each of them has been kind of like raised in isolation and with only sort of the, the flawed detritus of, of what's come before in terms of like, you know, with Abby, it's literally garbage, but with uh, Duncan and Swanee, it's sort of like uh, the, the flawed dreams and ideals of their parents. So, yeah. Well, right. Yeah. So for Swanee, it's kind of, Upper class, pretentious garbage, and yeah. with uh, Duncan, it's sort of pop culture, shallow mm-hmm. garbage. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and um, you know, Swanee has been sort of groomed to be, um, you know, to be a trophy wife basically for her entire life. Um, so you know, she's sort of she has read a lot, but she hasn't read very widely. She doesn't really have a sense of like people's experience other than her. She's very snobbish. And then um, Duncan, in a way, is like in sort of the same position that, you know, he has been the star of this reality show called Late Capitalism's Royalty. And everyone he knows has been, you know, associated somehow with helping him create that image. Um, So they're both coming from this place of, you know, immaturity and isolation that then runs up against the sort of brick wall of actual reality once they're once they're loose in the city. And I think it's interesting because I think you don't tend to think of dragons and sort of YouTube stars as going together, but that's kind of what yeah. you do in this book. Yeah, I was really interested in having the book um, 
be kind of ha- joining together these different modules of genre. So there's sort of a fantasy element with the dragons. There's sort of like a near future dystopia element with some of the reality TV stuff and technology. Um, there's like a gothic romance in what ends up unfolding in Swanee's story. Um, the first chunk of the novel, the first third of it really is like a marriage plot. And I thought a lot about people like Jane Austen. Um, so yeah, so I definitely wanted to join together kind of these, these disparate fictive universes and see what, see what resulted from that. Now, are you a big consumer of, uh, reality TV and, uh, YouTube personalities and stuff like that? Um, I mean, you know, not, not a huge consumer, but I think I'm more, I would say instead of like a consumer, I'm more just sort of an observer. Like I kind of will see this stuff and maybe because I'm not fully immersed in it, I'll see how, um, how surreal and odd it really is. So I think that that was kind of what inspired some of those elements, um, was more like kind of seeing stuff out of the corner of your eye and thinking, what does that say about our world? And what would it say about a world where it was even more extreme, you know? I just read a book by, um, I think, like the CEO of YouTube or something, and he was saying that if you pull kids under the age of 14 or something and ask them who, who are their favorite celebrities, mm-hmm. they, they don't say like Leonardo DiCaprio or, or movie stars. They say it's all like all 10 spots is all YouTube personalities. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind I of did, I, didn't, I didn't mean to bum you out. I was just that's just reporting the... Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I think that that's, that says something about where we are as a culture, right? Like, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, that one of the things that's fascinating about, you know, that's fascinating sort of about reality culture is that there's, there's this hunger for authenticity and honesty and access to something real. But at the same time, um, it's, it's almost like, as soon as you try to approach that, it's like trying to look directly at a star, you know, like, uh, you can sort of see the stars that are next to it, but when you focus your eyes directly on one star in the sky, sometimes it sort of fades away to a pinpoint. And I think it can kind of be the same way with reality stuff that the more, um, the more cameras you train on someone's life, especially the life of somebody who's young and wants to be famous, the more kind of distorted and, um, and fakeified a version you end up getting. Now, Duncan is a hilarious character. Oh, thank just, you. Yeah. I was just laughing out loud at so many of the things he said. I was just curious, were you consciously trying to make him funny, or is it just like you can't write about this kind of self-involved YouTube personality guy without having it just be inherently comical? Well, I definitely intended for the book to be satirical, you know, in sort of both senses of that. Like, I wanted it to be funny, and then I also sort of wanted it to be pointed in a lot of ways. And I feel like there is just something, yeah, there is just something truly absurd about, like, um, when somebody kind of wants to manufacture this image rather than actually developing a personality that automatically leads to all kinds of like hypocrisy and lack of self-knowledge in ways that end up then as soon as they have to engage with like problems in their life, like lead to pretty hilarious consequences. So yeah, I mean, he would definitely crack me up when I was writing him. Um, and, uh, yeah, and I think that, like, something that I figured out over the course of writing him, when I started out, I, I was just like, this guy's an idiot. And then over time, I realized it's really more that he's willfully ignorant, or he's ignorant because it's, you know, it's more convenient for him to be that way. Like, it, he's never made the effort to try to, like, understand his world. Um, and I think that that actually is funnier when a character is not just stupid, but they actually are sort of intellectually lazy. I think that there's more room to kind of yeah, because there can be moments where then that knowledge gets in and um, and, and they do have some degree of 
embarrassment or trying to cover for themselves that is is, is funnier than just being completely oblivious. So, well, it's yeah. funny because I found myself really liking him, which is strange because he's such an appalling person in so many ways. But yeah, totally. I, I feel like he has. I mean, he sort of says what he thinks, which is kind of endearing in a way. And mm-hmm. then he has this sort of like very subtle undercurrent of idealism or something that just sort of like it's mostly subsumed by other things, but it just sort of peeks out every once in a while uh, in a way I also found sort of endearing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like one thing that I did end up thinking about, again, with his character, I sort of started out the sort of origin story for his character was when I first started writing this book, I was, um, you know, in a very sort of uh, angry and dark frame of mind. And I was like, it's going to be about this guy who thinks he's the hero of the story. He thinks he's going to slay the dragons. And at the beginning of the book, you know, his flying car is knocked out of the sky by a dragon, not because he was attacked, but just because he wasn't paying attention. And then at the end of the book, he's going to go up into the sky to fight the dragons, and the exact same thing is going to happen. He's going to um, get, you know, knocked into the ocean. And the reason his name is Duncan Ripple is because he's he's going to dunk and not even leave a ripple. Like, you know, I was I had this very negative view of his character. And, um, and of course that would totally not work as an arc for a character for them to stay exactly the same throughout the entire book. But like, as I got to know him better, I realized that, yeah, a lot of his obsession with his image is incredibly shallow and, um, and incredibly self-serving, but there is one thread in there that I do find endearing, which is this idea that he wants to be a hero. Um, and that over the course of the book, hopefully his concept of what heroism is kind of deepens a little bit. So that was something, that was a way I found in, you know, um, I think that I have to ultimately identify with my characters to make them work. And, um, you know, that was something that I could identify with about him. So, I'm, yeah, so I'm glad you saw that in him because I've had some people say, oh, he's so unlikable. And then other people, like you say, that, you know, he's funny. So I'm also glad that, you know, he sort of like touched her, touched her heart a bit because, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's ultimately my goal with every character. Yeah, no, and, and uh, all these characters uh, touched my heart for sure. I mean, I don't know if we oh, have time great. to talk too much about all of them, but yeah, no, I, I, totally. I all it's the a characters huge, were. Yeah. Um, but the next thing I kind of want to talk about was that I thought it was really interesting how so this the city has has been attacked by dragons. Cont- mm-hmm. These dragons never land; they just sort of circle over the city constantly, shooting fireballs down at random targets. Yeah. And one effect that this has had is that everyone. It sort of hollowed out the the class structure that all the the middle, the middle class basically is all left, and the only people who are left are either the people who are too poor to leave, or you know not motivated sufficiently motivated to leave, or whatever, or yeah. the um the the very wealthy who have their whole status and um you know economic prosperity is invested in this particular location. And I thought that was that was just a really interesting dynamic um, in the book. Yeah, that was definitely something I thought about. Like, this was the first project where I've ever really had to do this level of world building. And so that was really something that it took me a while to figure out. Because the immediate question is, um, you know, if dragons are attacking your city, why would you stay? And, um, you know, at first, I was trying to come up with like, I, I tried to come up with like a host of different explanations. But then ultimately, I, you know, I landed where, you know, where the book is, um, that basically, what you're saying is exactly right, that it's been hollowed out, that that there's, you know, there's this uh, prison colony torch town where people are actively kept, um, you know, within the, this narrow perimeter of this prison colony in the lower city. Um, and then there are people who have sort of dead-ended their lives in some way, and 
that are just like living in apartments, like, you know, in, in the largely like abandoned neighborhoods of the rest of the area. But then you have people like the Ripples who in a way are in these kind of gilded cages where they have, you know, real estate investments in the city. They have these enormous mansions that are filled with all of this valuable stuff. And it sort of tethers them to earth in this strange way. And I, I, I found that idea kind of haunting. Um, yeah. So like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you picked up on that. So that was definitely something I was trying to evoke. And one of the things that it says in the book, Jack, is it, it says this is a book about what it's like to be young in a very old world. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I was really interested in the idea of inheritance, sort of like I was saying about, you know, um, that all three of the main characters are sort of on these islands of garbage. Um, you know, I, I was thinking a lot about, like, you know, living as we do in, like, the Anthropocene, this this era where our world has been completely remade by humans. There's this this strange, we're in this strange situation where, you know, we're in this human-made world, and yet even though we're humans, we don't have the ability to just turn back the clock and, set you know, return things to their default settings, whatever those would be. Instead, we have to sort of, like, live in the wreckage that others of our kind have created. And that's true environmentally, definitely, and in terms of, like, social structures. Like, you know, I try to evoke income inequality and mass incarceration and, um, you know, the sort of dysfunctional gender relations of this world. But then it's also just true on a really personal level that we, you know, um, come into the world with, like, the baggage of, you know, the relationships that we've witnessed in our families and, um, and, and also kind of like the culture that we consume, um, you know, shapes our dreams and the language with which we speak about our own emotions and desires and what we think is possible. So I really kind of wanted to look at that from every angle in the lives of these characters that they're, yeah, that as much as they're trying to define themselves and, and come of age, a lot of that a lot of those paths have already been trod before them. And like, you know, that it's not just a completely blank slate. Like the sky is yours, but the world is on fire. Yeah. Well, it seems to me that that idea resonates particularly with people who have come in the wake of the baby boom generation, you know, like millennials and um, the generation after whatever they're calling it now. You know, I was watching um, Bill Maher recently and I forget who it was, but one of the panelists says they were talking about is some I forget even who, which some baby boomer politician going to run for president next time around. And this person says, I mean, I think what we should say to the baby boomers is thank you for your service. Goodbye. (laughs) You know, and it seems like that idea is maybe at play in this book. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I'm not like, uh, yeah, I'm certainly not like anti any one particular baby boomer. But there is there is sort of a feeling when you look at the world of like, I guess the reason that I'm not particularly unsympathetic with the baby boomers is that I don't really know if it's in human nature for anyone to do any better. Like, um, I think that I think that every generation makes different mistakes and equally bad ones. But I think that what is really starting to happen in the way that we we think about the time period that we're living in is that that like it's it's sort of like the Philip Larkin poem like you know man hands misery on to man it deepens like a coastal shelf like it's gotten to this point where it's so apparent that there's there's no going back and there's no one doing what's been done that that can make you feel kind of like a kind of trapped and frustrated by people who have come before but i don't know that it's any one generation's fault um, yeah, I guess that the baby boomers were just so idealistic that they did think that they could completely remake the world, in, you know, in this positive way that it makes that 
all the more cruelly ironic that they haven't. Yeah. Well, and I, I think that there were so many baby boomers and that they've held on to power for so long that it's sort of an unprecedented situation in world history where you have yeah. adults who are still not in control of their own society because the generation ab above them is still holding on to so much power. No, that's definitely true. I can I can certainly see that, that it's someone else's turn at this point. Even if, you know, we're going to steer steer things in a bad direction, we can steer it in our own direction. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about who are, what, was, what were some of your big influences for this book? I'll say like the ones that st seemed to me were kind of Jeff Vandermeer, Murphy yeah. Peake, Jane Austen, and Poe. There are a couple of Poe references in there that kind of jumped out at me. Uh, what do you, do you is that, am I uh, on the right no, track there? Totally. Like, um, you know, the only one of those people that I, I haven't read is Mervyn Peake, who I've heard a ton about, but I, I really need to like, uh, yeah, it's the, the Gorman has trilogy, right? Like, yeah, Gorm uh, Gormanghast, yeah. Gormanghast, yeah. Like, that's definitely something that's been on my radar for a while that I need to read. But, um, yeah, no, Jane Austen, obviously the whole marriage plot, that was really influenced by her work. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, Jonathan Lethem was somebody that, um, you know, really showed me like new ways of thinking about genre that that genre could be a it could be something that you don't just allude to but that you actually sort of like lift a structure from a, another genre to use in your work um like yeah like he definitely does with something like gun with occasional music i i was like oh that's such a cool idea that you can take you know sort of a raymond chandler noir story and then put it in this different setting um and so I, I thought about some of his techniques i also really love his book chronic city which is also about a city um, I was definitely influenced by Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Like, um, I love that book. And although, I mean, in a lot of ways, mine on the surface doesn't seem similar to it. The thing that I took from that was that you could be really ambitious about creating an imagined history, um, you know, that you could have a story that's, you know, where the present action is propulsive and engaging, but where it all sort of rests on this history and culture that you also imagine within the same novel. Um, yeah, I like Angela Carter a lot. Um, I definitely, I love Kelly Link. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other big ones. Oh, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of Thomas Pynchon. So, um, you know, his, his work, especially something like Gravity's Rainbow, Although I'm certainly not as experimental in this novel as he was in that, the idea of having this huge cast of characters um, who sort of, you know, intersect around a central image, like in that book, The V2 Rocket, and in my book, The Dragons, like that was something that I, you know, sort of realized it was possible to do in fiction from his work. Oh, and I, I also really love House of Leaves, um, you know, and that was something that with using different kinds of text as I do in this book, where I use... Um, you know, screenplays, letters, diary entries, like, um, a video game script. Like, House of Leaves was a book where it made me realize, like, yeah, you know, you can tell a story that kind of manipulates text on the page in these ways that, that pay off, in my opinion. So. Well, yeah, I was sort of curious with the screenplay and video game flowchart kind of sections. Are you, are you, do you have any background in screenwriting or video games or how involved are you in those things? I mean, I took a screenwriting class when I was in graduate school, and I found that really illuminating. I think it taught me a lot about story structure in general, and then it also just taught me the formatting of a screenplay. And, um, you know, one of the reasons that I use, since, like, Duncan's character is so obsessed with, like, visual media, um, like video games and reality TV especially, I really felt like it was 
the truest thing to his character to like allow that stuff to take up some space on the page in the same way that I have, like, you know, when I'm writing in Swanee sections, I have a part that's a parody of a sort of Jane Austen like novel. I wanted to, you know, think about like what his internal metaphorical landscape would look like. Um, but yeah, you know, and video games, I've never written a video game. I mean, I've played them and I think that they're really interesting as a narrative art form. Um, but what I did actually grow up reading were choose your own adventure books. Mm. So I probably was thinking a little bit more about those when I wrote the, uh, the forking paths, uh, video game chart, like, you know, because that's always really intrigued me. The idea that you as an author would choose junctures where, you know, the reader could make one of two choices and then see how those, those options played out. So maybe someday I'll find a way to, to write a choose your own adventure story because I've always found that form kind of fascinating. Did you ever read Space Vampire? No, I didn't. Was that a choose-your-own-adventure? Yeah, it's the best choose-your-own-adventure I ever read. It's so good. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I mean, I, I read so many of them. They used to have them in the uh, the library at my school, and I just remember, like, you know, that just being candy for me at the time. So it's possible that I crossed paths with that book, but I don't remember it. And the, it sounds like I would. The thing <laughs> I thought was so uh, amazing about Space Vampire is that the entire war- every path pretty much has its own world behind it so yeah. you know in you know so you never know if the vampire is a good guy or a bad guy or like what his powers are or whatever because it's different depending on which path you find yourself into oh that's wonderful and does his character change depending on the choices that you make yeah yeah absolutely no oh, that's so, you gotta so check cool. it out it's so good yeah definitely um i mean are there any any video games would you say that have been influential on your creative life at all yeah, I mean, I, I really like the Bioshock series a lot. Um, so I think that, you know, I don't know if I would say it's exactly an influence, but maybe on some subconscious level, like, you know, the idea of in, in the first Bioshock game of Rapture, this city that's sort of fallen into disrepair and that sort of stands as a monument to human folly, I could kind of see some, some thematic connections between that and this book for sure. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned that um, like uh, Swanee sort of has her taste in books, and she's you said she's kind of snobby, right? Um, yeah, definitely. Do you uh, do you disagree with her taste, or do you agree with any of her snobby attitudes about spy novels or uh, mysteries or anything like that? Well, I mean, I think that like Swanee is definitely the character that's the most uh, the most closely based on me, but at the same time, she's sort of based on my own worst tendencies. Um, so I, I like to think that I'm more self-aware about those tendencies than she is because, you know, I've been able to write about them. Um, yeah, you know, so I mean, certainly there, yeah, there's that moment when she's thinking about, she's about to meet Duncan and she's, she's worried that he doesn't read the same kinds of books that she does. Little does she know that he doesn't read at all and that, you know. Oh, that was painful. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, so in that moment, I'm kind of like poking a little bit of fun at her and probably also at myself. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, I, I certainly also really love Jane Austen novels and that's something that she's passionate about. And I, and I have a soft spot for gothic romances. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like my critique of Swanee is, is not that she shouldn't know the things that she knows, but that she thinks she knows everything. And actually she has this really narrow understanding of the world. So. You know, um, yeah. So in in that sense, I'm I'm sympathetic with her, but I also think that she's limited. I mean, this in this book, there are a lot of references to fictional works that I think are 
fictional themselves, right? I mean, some of them are real, yeah. but a lot of them seem to just be things that you've dreamed up, right? Yeah, I would say like uh, 95% of the time, if something's mentioned in the book, it's completely it's completely made up. Like uh, Swanee has a favorite book called Canfield Manor, which is sort of like the title is sort of similar to Mansfield Park, which is a Jane Austen novel, but Canfield Manor is not a real book. Um, and I make references to its plot as if it's something that the characters in world all all know about. And of course, it's, you know, I don't even really, I, I haven't even completely worked out what that plot would be. And then there's also a part where she reads a, a vampire romance and um, like that is also completely fictional. And I'm actually trying to remember what the title of it is now. It went through a couple of different titles because originally it was going to be called Revenant and then that movie with Leonardo DiCaprio came out. So I had to change it to Fiend. And then hmm. that turned out to be another book that had been published by Crown was called Fiend. So I had to, I had to come up with a third title for it. So yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I really love that metafictional thing of, you know, having worlds within worlds, nested stories. And I feel like it's reflective of like, if you're doing world building, thinking, what are the fantasies that the people here have? I think that that often can kind of like do a lot of that world building work for you. Well, it, it's sort of, sort of mind bending when there's the real things, because then you're like, wait, so I guess Gilbert and Sullivan existed in this world, but it was, but uh, the history is all completely yes. different, right? So is it a different, like a mirror universe, Gilbert and Sullivan, or, but they, did they write the same thing or is it like a warped thing with the same title or? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that was something that I enjoyed playing with, like, uh, there's also a, a William Shatner song um, that's re- referred to in a chapter where, but I just refer to him as the Shat, as if that's <laughs> sort of his name in the world of this book. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, I I love the Terry Gilliam movie Brazil, and one of the things that I think is so interesting is that th- that's this uh, completely alternate universe, sort of semi-futuristic, semi-Orwellian place, but they're watching these old movies on their uh, their monitors at work. Um, and they're old movies from our world. So you're sort of like, well, you know, when did our histories diverge or did they, or are some things present in both universes? And that question's never totally resolved. So I feel like there's something about like the shock of familiarity in the midst of the strange that can almost make it seem stranger. The calendar in this world is dated from the discovery of fire. Yeah. So the year is like 300,000 something. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, that was something that I definitely thought a lot about because at first I actually had, I I went through some different iterations with like how I was doing the numbering of years because I wanted to be able to say, okay, the dragons came up 50 years ago. And then in between that time and this time, various things have happened. So I needed there to be dates. Um, But I didn't want it to just be exactly the same years as our world because then there's this question of like, well, if I set this in the future, am I, is it going to come across like I'm making a prediction, which I'm obviously not like, you know, the rules of, of sort of science and history seem to operate differently in this world than they do in ours. Um, so yeah, so dating it from the invention of fire seemed like kind of a natural way to mark it as a, a different, an entirely different timeline. And also, I feel like the human invention of fire is kind of the very beginning of that Anthropocene thing that I was talking about before. Um, you know, we associate fire with like, you know, Prometheus and with like sort of the discovery of knowledge. But then it's also like fire is something that consumes and that can be used as a weapon and that like, um, you know, creates light pollution and, and sort of it's sort of the, the origin of a lot of uh, 
a lot of the negative things that we associate with like, you know, human civilization as well. And then of course, fire is what comes out of the dragon's mouth. So hmm. all of those ideas seem connected. Well, when you talk about predicting the future, that makes me think of the character of Sharky. And yeah. fairly early in the book, we, we find out that he can hear things that are about to happen in the future, which I think is such a cool, I, you know, sort of eerie image. And I've, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Yeah, thank you so much. Like, yeah, I was I was really interested in, so, you know, he makes that drug, uh, Cha, and I was really interested in the idea of a drug that would kind of conjure up the past, you know, I don't want to give away plot stuff, but like, um, and then I was thinking, well, what happens if somebody has been consuming this for years and years and years, and it's almost that idea of like, you know, time being a circle or something that at a certain point, like, instead of it bringing up things from from the past, it starts evoking the future for him. So, um, and I also, yeah, I mean, I mentioned before how much I like Pynchon and Gravity's Rainbow, especially that's sort of an idea, a similar idea that he plays with in that book where, you know, he talks about, like, usually it's stimulus response, but what if the response starts to precede the stimulus? So I was like, yeah, kind of thinking about something similar with like, uh, yeah, with, with having, with those predictive abilities, like going both ways. I, so. I just feel like it's so common for people to have prophetic visions where they see the future. Yeah. And it just, just seems like unexplored territory. What if you smelled the future, you know, heard the future, et cetera? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I kind of didn't want it to be that he, if he saw images of things that were going to happen, then that would feel like too big of a giveaway. But if it's more like kind of a feeling or, you know, yeah, and I, I do have the part where he talks about he can hear what the fire is going to sound like down the street, you know. Um, I felt like that that's a little more mysterious and it kind of leaves more space for him for him to wonder exactly what the consequences of, you know, the path that he's on will be. Mm -hmm. And his name is Eisenhower Sharkey. Yeah. So are you a big Eisenhower fan or where'd that come from? I have no idea where that came from. That was just one of those things that like yeah, it was just a name that sort of presented itself to me. I had actually seen the last name Sharky, and I was like, that would be a great name for, you know, the sort of Dickensian villain. Um, but then, like, I, I don't know exactly what made me come up with Eisenhower as a first name. I think that, like, one thing I was interested in with names in this book is sort of, like, where they come from, you know? Like, so um, Ripple and Swanee have both inherited their names from their families, and those are sort of a source of, of pride, but also of kind of unwanted responsibility. But then you have uh, Abby, who isn't quite sure what her name is, and she's given a nickname, Abby, by Ripple that she carries around for most of the book, um, but it's almost like on loan. And then Sharky names himself. Like, I have a, a part where I talk about how he doesn't know who his parents are. Um, so I like the idea that as this autodidact, that he would have this name that sounds sort of elaborate, but that doesn't have a meaning that he's particularly aware of or connected to. That it's like, yeah... It's sort of like this encyclopedia that he found in a dumpster, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. really cool. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about this. Uh, uh, Duncan, uh, one of his pastimes is power jousting, <laughs> yeah. which you suggest is basically the two people are sitting on dro like large drones, like drones yeah. large enough to hold them up, and then they charge at each other and knock each other off. I think that, I think that sounds pretty cool. I think that could be a real thing. <laughs> I would totally believe that, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking of things like mechanical bulls and stuff. So I was uh -huh. like, what would be kind of the laziest, the laziest and yet most unnecessarily dangerous sport that he could engage in? And I was like, well, obviously it would be power jousting with drone ponies. 
So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to invest in the, the power jousting league. You know, we can, yeah. we can get that started. Yeah, the insurance premiums were probably pretty high. <laughs> well, I was thinking they would do it over, uh, like, a pool or, like, a mat or something, you know? I mean, yeah. to yeah, keep or insurance a, premiums down. Or a giant ball pit like he has yeah, in the bedroom. Yeah. So, oh, see? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about this line. It says, perhaps as helpless children, we have no choice but to love what wields power over us, no matter how cruel or unfair it may prove itself to be, uh, which I think is definitely true. I think if it, it seems to me that's not just true of children. It seems to me that's true of humanity in general, that it's almost like um, if something has power over you, you you kind of a lot of there's this tendency to just love it because the alternative is to fear it or to yeah. hate it. And that just makes you feel powerless. Um, so you often see people just having this uh, otherwise inexplicable affection for people or institutions that are kind of grinding them down and don't care about them at all. Yeah, I, I definitely like that was exactly what I was what I was getting at. Like, um, yeah, so many of the characters in the book are kind of in these um, asymmetrical power relationships where they have sort of allied their, themselves with like, you know, a person or entity that's, that's stronger and dominates them. And, you know, I think that that's something that's like very true in our world too. And, and that I think is kind of like, yeah, kind of haunting. And I mean, part of that idea of being young in a very old world is that, you know, when you're in that position of, you know, childhood or powerlessness, um, you know, you do sort of want to be taken care of. And it's only when you fully accept that, like, uh, that, that no one is going to be there to like catch you when you fall that like, uh, that you can maybe challenge some of those like larger structures, but like, uh, but that is a terrifying thing to have to acknowledge. So, yeah. There was a funny section where Duncan thinks about the, I think it's Duncan thinks about the dynamics of disappointing your parents. And he has kind of, he goes through kind of, you know, uh, yeah, just some of the dynamics of that. I was, I was wondering how you came up with that or were you a bad kid or like, where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I think that like, like a lot of people, um, so like, yeah, like I think that, when I first started writing this book, like post grad school, so like, you know, I had, I had had this novel that I had worked on for a while that I was having a lot of trouble finding a home for. And I was, you know, working in publishing and like, you know, having, having these editorial jobs that were, um, that, that were not really what I felt like I wanted to do and not things that I felt super proud of or that I felt like were, um, you know, really challenging. And, and so I was kind of in this place where I was like, you know, my parents have like invested so much in like, you know, trying to help me find my way doing these creative things that I'm passionate about and I'm completely letting them down and I'm letting myself down. And so I, I think that like more than coming out of a place of rebellion, it came out of a place of feeling like insecure. And then I was sort of like, well, maybe I can explore some of these feelings in this book. Um, so yeah, you know, I think Duncan and Swanee are both haunted by, by these expectations that they feel like the world has for them. And it's only when they're able to kind of jettison that, that they're able to like come into their own and start making some of their own decisions. Um, but yeah, like that moment when, yeah, when Ripple brings Abby home and he's thinking about like, you know, he, he just, he, he basically like wishes he could like dial back like how bad the situation is. <laughs> like, I feel like, uh, even though I've never been in exactly those circumstances, that there was something there emotionally for me to hook into. Well, there's this line I just love where he, he says something like, um, it's important if you're going to disappoint your parents to do it in a way that there's a word for because people don't like being disappointed and confused at the same time. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, I really liked that. Like, uh, 
Yeah, exactly. Like that, you know, if, if, if there's something where there's kind of like, there's something that they can at least tell people that you've done, you know, then, then that's better than the situation he finds himself in, which is just like, not only did he flunk out of school, not only has he screwed up his marriage, but now he also has this, uh, this girlfriend that nobody knows, like, you know, what to do with her. And, um, yeah, it just, it, it seems like, and his father certainly is someone who wants to have a name for stuff. Like I, I felt like I really discovered his father's character when I had him communicating with his son in a business memo. Because <laughs> he really likes everything to be um, summed up in a bulleted point, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like this book is getting a lot of attention. Uh, I, I was talking to you that you were in Entertainment Weekly, and I don't know, I've just seen your name all over the place. Could you well, just thanks. talk about what it's like um, having the book be out in the world now and what kind of response it's getting? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been really great to, like, uh, yeah, to see it get some review attention and I, you know, having interviews like this one and others, it's been really fun to be able to like talk about it and share it with people. I mean, I think that like, you know, you work on something in solitude for years and years. And then even once you start working with like an agent and editor, it's still a very intimate one-on-one kind of process. So there's something really terrifying about all of a sudden being like, oh, you know, like with the entertainment weekly thing, you know, it's like, this is something, this is a publication that I've certainly heard of and that, like, you know, has the sort of, like, wide readership, like, you know, what will end up, like, what will people think if, like, you know, if, if they sort of stare into the darkest reaches of my imagination. Um, but overall, it's been really wonderful. I mean, you know, I think that, like, for me, writing is communication. So the more I can, you know, the more people I can communicate with and reach, then the better, even if... uh yeah, even if, of course, their interpretations of the work are not always going to be the same as mine. It doesn't really belong to me anymore. So. Well, so have you gotten any interpretations that really surprised you or um, stick out in your mind or anything? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's definitely interesting to see how people react to the characters because I think that um, I actually wrote a piece for Signature Reads on unlikable characters because, like, um, I didn't intend for these characters to be aspirational or to be kind of like, you know, best friends for the reader. They're all incredibly selfish. Um, but then, of course, you develop an affection for people who come out of your imagination and who you spend years of your life with. Like, um, so I think that that's been, it's been interesting to see people either find them maybe more sympathetic than I do at times or to, you know, find them totally repugnant and without the possibility of redemption because those are both extremes that like you know to me it's almost more like the way that you'd feel about a a flawed family member where you know you know them so well that you no longer are really in a position of like sitting in judgment and like yeah so that's that's been that's definitely been an interesting part of this but yeah well we haven't talked about abby so much and i did what you were just saying made me kind of think that um, one aspect of her character is that you mentioned she was raised on this uh, garbage or grew up in this garbage island. Mm-hmm. But for the first couple of years, there was a, an adult woman who was sort of her caretaker. Yeah. Um, and it just um, it, it emphasizes how much as children we are at the mercy of adults around us to just completely shape our view of reality. Um did you do any? I don't know. Did, was did you do any sort of research or model that on any on anyone that that idea of of uh, you know someone who has very limited, um, you know, in, uh, exposure to the outside world and can develop some really particularized um, scheme for how things work? No, yeah, like, I didn't, 
I mean, you know, like, it's certainly, like, one thing I could have done that I didn't do, like, you know, read real stories about people who were confined to some some situation where they didn't have outside contact. I really used more of my imagination. Um, you know, I I did, like, you know, read things like the book Room by Emma Donahue um, and uh, the movie Tideland, another Terry Gilliam movie. Like, I, I thought about both of those stories a little bit when it came to Abby's character. But, of course, those are also fiction. So I wouldn't say that it's in any way, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not in any way some sort of like, you know, fully, fully reported story on what would actually happen if someone was in those circumstances. I think I also autobiographically just kind of drawn my experience of being an only child and kind of a lonely kid. And then I thought, well, what would it be like with that taken to an extreme, you know? Um, so yeah. And something else that's, you know, unusual about Abby is that she has this ability to communicate with certain animals. And, um, you know, I certainly do not share that ability, but it is strange when you have a pet, how you feel like you get to know them to such a degree that you will sometimes feel like you're non-verbally communicating. And I, so I was sort of like interested in that as well. Like, you know, what would it be like if that was like an actual literal mind meld that could happen between a person and an animal? And then of course, how does that shape your personality? Because like, you know, animals are in touch with, uh, you know, they, they sort of are on a different frequency than human beings are. And I think that that makes Abby in some ways more open, but in some ways more vulnerable to the other humans around her. That's interesting what you're saying about being an only child, because I'm an only child as well. And my parents are both scientists, so they worked very long hours. So I had just incredibly long stretches of time, like yeah. throughout my whole childhood by myself to just like do whatever I wanted, you know, as a latchkey kid mm -hmm. uh, starting in third grade. And oh, wow. so, um, yeah, and so I, I, I sort of like go back and forth on whether that's a good thing or not. I mean, I'm kind of fond of how I turned out, but I mean, you definitely, there are a lot of things about just like quote unquote normal people that I think you, that I don't, I, I just didn't get because, you know, I like so much of my life was, um, so much of my childhood was just in my own imagination and just like doing my own thing, you know? Yeah, totally. No, I mean, that was something I was really interested with all three of these characters. I mean, Duncan's been at this all boys school, but he's also been kind of like on an island even within that because, you know, he's been on this reality show, which sort of creates this, this little circus that's all about him. So he has like one friend. And then, um, both Abby and Swanee are supposed to really not have known any other children, like any other people their own age ever. Um, and I, I thought that that was like a really interesting place to start from because, then, of course, they get into their relationships. Each of those two girls, like, her relationship with Duncan is so shaped by these models that she conjured up in complete isolation. So, you know, Swanee has this idea that they should have this sort of Regency romance where he's going to be very intellectual and um, they're going to have this banter. And, you know, she has this very clear idea of what things are going to be like. And then Abby has this idea that, you know, she's prayed for him and he's come to her island. And both of those are things that Duncan is somewhat oblivious to and certainly incapable, constitutionally incapable of living up to. So, you know, I was kind of interested in that gap between expectation and reality that can happen. I heard you say in another interview, you said that anyone who reads this book can probably tell that I have a fairly body sense of humor. Yeah, that's um, definitely true. It's <laughs> is definitely true. But I was, I was, I was just wondering, I mean, it seems like, it's getting more and more risky to say body things in public. Yeah. Um, and I was just wondering if how you feel as someone who I guess like has a body sense of humor yourself, do you feel like like how do you feel about the 
like that you have to be more and more careful about saying body things in public? Yeah, I mean, well, like I definitely wanted, you know, Duncan's character to be a sort of satirical critique of things like, you know, toxic masculinity and rape culture and kind of like the, you know, commodification and objectification of women in media, um, all of which get, you know, parodied a lot in the book. And I feel like that's not going to be for everyone, but I think that, you know, it's hard to talk about those things and acknowledge them without, like, dramatizing them, right? Like, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's one reason that I didn't see this as a young adult novel, even though it has young protagonists, because I'm not trying to create aspirational characters modeling good behavior, you know? I'm really trying more to think about, like, well, what's going to slither out of the primordial soup of a culture that's gone even a few steps farther than our, than our own, like, you know, in in a lot of, like, yeah, in a, in a, in a lot of, like, toxic directions. So, um, yeah, you know, but I, yeah, I, I, I do think that it's tricky because, like, uh, I'm certainly somebody that, like, you know, I, I like stuff that is, that has an edge to it. And I'm like, okay with the fact that not everyone's going to like that. But I think that like where I start to get frustrated is when, when people say like, well, because this could be misinterpreted, it shouldn't exist. Like, obviously that's not something I'm ever going to be okay with, you know? Um, yeah. Well, it seems like it's relatively safe putting body stuff in a book that's published because then people can choose whether they want to read it or not. Mm -hmm. Um, but do you feel, I don't know, do you feel it's maybe, it's, do you do you feel more and more pressure to just like keep that just in the book and not say it in public, or you know, do you not? I don't not care about that. Yeah, I mean, do you mean just in terms of like what sort of joke would I make like in? Yeah, like I mean, um, I guess that like I guess that I think another problem in our culture is that between things like you know Twitter and sort of sound bites and stuff, it's really easy for people to encounter something with absolutely no context. And so I think that that's something that I like, that I feel bummed out about. Like, I think that basically, like, when it's always a longer conversation, then, then most people are more like, uh, more willing to hear you out. But when like, they encounter, like, one thing that you said without, you know, and, and, and they don't know who you are, or like, you know, what, like, you know, what else might have surrounded it, then like, that, is something where I think people are much more likely to have a knee-jerk reaction of, like, I'm offended by this, you know, so, which I think is unfortunate. Yeah. It says in your bio that you worked as a ghostwriter. I don't know. Yeah, Can you I not did. talk about that or? Uh... I, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm allowed to, like, and I, I wouldn't particularly want to name the books <laughs> that I worked on, but I wrote these two young adult novels for Alloy Entertainment Group, and um, I mean, I think that it was a really helpful experience for me in terms of understanding that even in a novel where you feel like you sort of have all of the space to roam, you do actually have to have like a skeleton underneath what you're doing that gives it shape and structure. Um, so that was useful to me, but I mean, I, they were definitely these really silly books about super privileged, uh, New York city teenagers, like love lives basically. And that's not the kind of thing I even wanted to read when I was a teenager. So it was, it was certainly like, you know, a bit of a thought experiment to try to put myself in the shoes of that particular audience. Um, yeah. 
So you weren't, fun. you weren't doing yeah. like celebrity memoirs or anything like that? No, I was, I, I was writing these young adult novels for the, the same company that did like, uh, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and uh-huh. Gossip Girl. Like it was, it was that company. So yeah. Um, but yeah, not something that I think I would want to revisit now at this point in my writing career, but I do think that it was like kind of a good stepping stone for me. Like, you know, and just thinking about plot, which is not something that tends to be emphasized in like MFA programs or undergraduate workshops. Well, so. but, but the overprivileged New York City teenagers seems like it may be yeah, totally. fed into this story. It's funny because like when I said that out loud, I was like, wow, I never saw a connection between <laughs> what I was writing about in that book and this one. But it kind of, yeah, it kind of does have some weird parallels. Um, but obviously I wasn't allowed to release like uh, my full satirical imagination on on the work for hire. So, yeah. It also says in your bio that you uh, teach and tutor. Could you talk about that? Yeah, I uh, I teach classes for Sackett Street, which is this organization where, um, you know, different creative writing instructors all over New York City teach workshops out of their homes. So I teach a a weekly fiction workshop, um, you know, to a small group of like eight or nine students. Um, And I've learned a lot about yeah, a lot about writing from doing that. Like, um, you know, I've been doing it like a couple of years now and it's made me sharpen and articulate a lot of the principles that I've held without necessarily knowing that I've held them. Um, and I always like try to present it to my students as this is, you know, the idea of this class is not that we're going to reach a consensus about like what's good and bad in your story. You know, we're not going to vote on it. It's ultimately up to you what you do with it. What these classes are for is to be a clash of aesthetics where you, you know, end up um, by hearing like a variety of opinions, you decide like, you know, what it is that you really value and, and what you feel like, uh, is, is holding you back. So, yeah. Um, and I try to have them be very genre neutral. Like, you know, um, I've had students who are writing science fiction and fantasy, uh, students who are writing like, you know, chick lit or mystery and, you know, and then students writing sort of American domestic realism. And I just try to put everything on the same level and always start from a you know, the place of like, okay, well, what can we observe about this story? What, what can we say to describe what it's doing? And then how can we help it take that farther? So, yeah. So when you, when it says that you tutor, like, is that, is that the same thing or do you do, I don't yeah. know, are you a writing tutor, like with one-on-one instruction or stuff like that? Or Well, I've actually done a couple of different things. I um, have worked as a writing tutor in the, you know, the writing center at Columbia, um, helping students with like, you know, undergrads with papers or graduate students with their dissertations. But then I'm also doing a thing where I do private manuscript consulting. So if a student's like working on a novel, then, um, you know, they can either like I have one student who I meet with weekly and she gives me, you know, 25 page chunks of the book that she's working on. And, uh, you know, I read through them and we discuss them and we discuss how they fit in the book's overall structure. And I've also done sort of like one off things where somebody sends me a manuscript and they're like, could you give me feedback on this? And then I do line edits and I write them a letter and we have like one conversation about it, you know, all in one shot. So yeah, I like working with people one-on-one too. When I was working at agencies, you know, you do editorial letters on people's manuscripts in that context. So it's very similar. Um, but what's fun is that, you know, at the point when you're representing someone or working for someone who represents that person, you're really just thinking about like, how do we how do we clean this up and get it ready to go to market? And I like starting earlier when, you know, people are still generating material because then sometimes you can, you can help them discover things that they didn't know were possible for the book. So are you taking on new clients right now? Like if people go to your website, can they get in touch with you? 
Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Like if, if anybody out there listening is interested, then uh, yeah, reach out to me by email and uh, yeah, we'll have a conversation about it. So yeah, definitely. Because this book, uh, I have to say, is really, really well written. Um, oh, thank you. So yeah. Chandor definitely knows what she's talking about when it comes to comes to writing. Well, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and then what are you, are you working on something new now? Yeah, I'm working on a new novel. It's tentatively titled Parasite Universe. And it's about this, uh, this couple, this man and this woman whose, um, romantic interludes take them into this heightened and real fantasy space. And it has a lot of elements of noir in it. I'm really influenced by the movie Double Indemnity. Um, yeah, so it's sort of like, sort of like, a. I don't know. I guess I'd say a speculative noir. Like, uh, that's how I would describe it. Yeah. And, I'm excited. Uh, well, yeah. And you spent 10 years pretty much. Mm-hmm. Well, I, well, it was a 10 year process anyway, getting this first or getting, um, this book we're talking about. This guy is yours published. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you, how do you, uh, foresee a, a shorter turnaround on, on this new book? I certainly hope so. I mean, yeah. Like, I guess I would say, yeah, I started, I started This Guy's Wars in about 2009. And like I said, I was working very on and off, like, um, during the beginning of that period. And then also, um, I sold it two years before it came out. So, like, that did give me, you know, some time that I, like, I've been using to start this project and that I've been working on some other things. Um, but yeah, I definitely hope that it will not take me another, the better part of another decade to, to get <laughs> my next book out there. So, fingers crossed. Like, yeah. <laughs> All right, cool. So uh, we're pretty much out of time. So do you have any, just any other, uh, anything else you wanted to mention? Any other projects or, I don't know, thoughts or anything? No, this was terrific. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Yeah, all right. So we'll wrap things up there. So, we, so again, we've been speaking with Chandler Clang-Smith, and the new book is called The Sky is Yours. So Chandler, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks again. Bye. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Chandler Clang-Smith for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to Alessandro Moranti and James Gunther, who both just signed up this week to support us on Patreon. Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Andrew Seuss, who just made a one-time contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.